0: This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley.
1: And I'm Peter Sir, And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Today's show has a very Japanese flavour. We start with a new translation of an important anthology of medieval Japanese poetry.
0: And Australia. Well, this morning we travel all the way to Melbourne to talk to Australian poet Grant Caldwell about his new collection, Blue Balloon, a really fine selection of haiku and senryu. So, the coffee's made.
1: The toast is on.
0: And the books are on the table.
2: I, uh, when I first started learning Japanese, I was a teenager, a kind of strange teenager who was interested in learning about languages and I just randomly picked up Japanese and never put it down. And uh, I had a Japanese dictionary and I had copy of these poems in Japanese. Didn't really know anything about them and didn't have any translations but had these poems and I thought well they're each very short and I have a dictionary so I'll start seeing whether I can find a way to work out what each one is saying. And I remember being hugely disappointed because I looked through the dictionary for every word I could find in the in the poems and not one of them the words was actually there. And it was only years later that I realized, okay, this is classical Japanese. It's not the same thing as contemporary Japanese. And uh, not only are the words different and the pronunciation different very often, but also, the, the amount of, like the grammar is different, so the amount of meaning, the layers of meaning and ambiguity that can be introduced is much higher than um, contemporary Japanese, even though I would still say that if you want it to be vague, Japanese is absolutely the language to learn. <laughs> so, um, I, I was really interested in looking at the I mean, it sounds very pretentious, but the gaps, the things that other people hadn't necessarily chosen to highlight in their translations and the the things that we could maybe tease out. I
3: view cherry blossoms in the ancient palace of Nara, exquisite. Each double layer reveals another inner sanctum. I am consumed by my own thoughts, vexed with those I love and those I loathe. This world has lost its zest. The
2: <laughs> world
3: See the reeds of Nanawa Lagoon, that brief span between each notch. Are you saying we've only been apart that long? Already it's another world.
2: In the long light
3: of spring, my own heart settles. I marvel
2: at how petals fall. Such unrest.
1: That was James Hadley and Ned Regan reading from A Gap in the Clouds, which is a new translation of the Ogura Yakunin issue, or 100 poems by 100 poets, which is one of the most important collections of Japanese classical poetry. And so they've come in to to join me on, on this unusually sunny day in Dublin to discuss this rich treasury of short poems on nature, the seasons, travel, I suppose above all, love. And just to say a word about the translators, first of all, James Hadley is Usher Assistant Professor in Literary Translation at Trinity College Dublin. He's the director of the College master's degree in literary translation, which is based at the Trinity Centre for Literary and Cultural Translation. After studying Japanese and computing as an undergraduate and later Buddhism and translation studies, he did a PhD in translation in 2013, since when he's become known as one of the leading researchers in indirect translation or the translation of translations. And is also very interested in practices that stretch our casual assumptions about what translation is and how it functions. Nell and uh, Regan is a poet and non-fiction writer based in Dublin, who's published three collections of poetry, preparing for spring, bound for home. They were from Arlen House, One Still Thing from Anna Tharman in, in 2014, and she's won many awards and has many prizes to her name, things like Arts Council Literature Bursaries, Fellowship at the International Writing Programme in Iowa. She's been a Fulbright Scholar in Berkeley and Patrick and Catherine Cavanagh Fellow as well. And her biography, Helena Maloney, Radical Life, was published by Arlen House in 2017 and was an Irish Independent Book of the Year. But she's also translated the Irish language poetry of Michal MacLeamore, And she's public, they've been published in Poetry Iron Review and in Cypher. So she works freelance as an educator and literary programmer. It's, it's a beautifully produced book by Daedalus the kind of thing that you can carry around with you and have to hand. And it's a hundred poems by by a by hundred poets. So first of all, I mean, how did this book or how did this anthology originally come about? When were these poems collected and who who wrote them?
3: It's an extraordinary mix. I mean, because poetry was very much kind of high court, sort of very much elite in Japan in the Middle Ages. And um, you can see the kind of the list of authors, their emperors, their empresses, their Buddhist high masters, their courtiers, ladies in waiting. So you're never going to find a farmer or kind of a, um, you know, anyone who isn't very much in the court. And actually, what was interesting is that your reputation at court was often very determined by poetry. Like your reputation could be built or fall on your latest poem or collection. And it was really common practice as well to put together anthologies of poems. And often these were at the, the behest of an emperor. So there's there's a very kind of strong tradition in that milieu, as it were, of of putting together um, anthologies. And I think, um, James, you did, like you had some really interesting things as well about the actual the compilation of that particular of art, the one that we worked on. Uh,
2: because the name in Japanese is Ogura Hyakunin issue. So Hyakunin means 100 people. And then issue means like one, one title, each, the each is kind of implied. But what is this ogre thing? So people often think that it's someone's name, maybe the, the, the poet's name. But as we know, each poem is written by a different poet. Um, so uh, this ogre actually is not a person, but it's a place. It refers to the location of someone's residence, like like the house, where they had these poems to decorate the the you know the sliding screens that separate Japanese rooms. So these poems were written onto those screens. So this collection was made for that purpose and only later was it written down. I mean, they were written down beforehand, but because they were far older than that, uh, that residence, but they were not conceived of as one book up until long after that had happened.
3: And the um, just the really interesting thing as well is that the now correct me if I'm not pronouncing this right, James Fujiwara no Take Takea was the, the the compiler in about 1235, I think it was. And what's fascinating when you look at the interrelationship of the biographies, like he was the mentor of one of the other poets, he was the I think the grandson of another famous anthologist. And you know, you really get a sense when you go through their biographies of just how small the world was and. And also how many debates they had about poetry and different aesthetics. And um, I think my favourite job description actually is, um, I think, Minister of the Bureau of Poetry, which I think is a brilliant one. We're missing out on something like that, I think.
1: (laughs) What makes them attractive to us? What makes them speak to us? Or indeed, what made them speak to Japanese listeners or readers all those years ago?
3: I think it's that ability to condense is so extraordinary. Do you know so the images are condensed and the other thing which really and it was I suppose the big one of the many challenges of translation is the kind of double meanings. So you had a lot of words, the the words that are completely pivot words that completely change the meaning of the poem. So this is why you have so many different translations as well that seem very at variance because they literally can be read in several different ways even though there's so few words in each. But I think the power of the imagery is it's about seasons passing, it's about autumn, it's about spring, it's about ageing, it's about love, loneliness. So they're such universal kind of human emotions that it doesn't matter if you're kind of an emperor in 12th century Japan or somebody under lockdown in Dublin in 2021. I think they still they they're such beautiful poems that, that i i do think they still speak to people and i think that you know has ensured their kind of resonance throughout japanese culture and then
1: right up to the present day because they are extraordinarily popular in japan aren't they
2: that's right they they're actually uh, they used as a game like they they turned into a game of uh, like a card game where um one person has half of the poem and they have to put on on a card and they have to put down the card onto a table without the other person knowing which card they've chosen. And then the person who's not the one who's just put down the card has to guess the other end of the poem, so the other half of the poem. And this is like a super fast play playing game that people, there are competitions and tournaments for this kind of uh, game. So yeah, that's massively important.
1: I love the cards. I mean, I think I just I just think that's something we could do for Irish poets. I mean, maybe there's a, there's a project for somebody. for Let's go to Poetry Ireland with that, with a card game.
3: And actually, I, I remember thinking, Peter, you're right, that it would be like playing Panger Bon in a lot of those poems as Snap. Do you know what I mean? That would be the equivalent. Yeah. And what I love as well is they even appear in like manga and anime films now. So they're they're right through to kind of contemporary culture they're very much part of curriculums but also part of contemporary culture
1: one of the things that i noticed about them as well i mean man, many of them are by women and i'm just wondering about the role that women played in in literature in japan of of this era it was hugely important
3: and i mean many of the most famous poets and writers were women you know at that period and for example the author kind of what is considered to be the first novel is The Tale of Genji is a one of the poets in, in the book who's a woman. And a lot of them tended to kind of coalesce around, you know, a particular empress maybe. And there was kind of quite a literary court that women were very prominent in. But I think it's a fifth of the poems we worked out are by women. And they do include the most famous Japanese women poets who were also just some of the most famous Japanese poets. I mean, I think the one, is it Ono Komachi had like seven no plays written about her. So they did, they play, played an extraordinary, extraordinarily central role in the literary
1: culture of the time. James is a Japanese-speaking scholar. Now there's the poet. So I kind of wondered how the translation worked.
3: Well, from my point of view, I'd always, like, I was quite influenced by Japanese poetry and translation from early on. That really kind of um, close attention to nature and the kind of zing that you got off, So the, the compression. and. I think I'd always, I mean, I do think translation is almost the kind of the, most, the deepest way of reading something. So, you know, myself and James had talked about doing a project. So when he suggested the book, which I didn't really know about, I was delighted to kind of go for it. And I suppose as well, you're, the challenge is always to make it fresh in English now, do you know? And and that was the biggest kind of challenge There's we faced you know not least because there's no pronouns in the originals do you know so you have to make a decision about who's talking to who whether a first or third person and that was that was a an interesting one
2: there was a few funny um situations well they're funny now but at the time i could just sense Nell's frustration where she would say but what does it actually mean what 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 is it saying and I struggled in many cases because it's not like you can like Japanese and English are just about as far apart as any two languages could be. The verbs come at a completely different place in the sentence. Sentences are built up with these tiny little particles, and especially in classical Japanese. You can you can build up these particles. So you can maybe say three sounds and then it means, oh, I wonder what it would be like if I had thought about something. Just with those three, three sounds. So poor old Nell was saying, what does this, what is this zo? Because I'm seeing it in three different places and it means different things. So we, we more than just handing back and forth paper, I'm not sure we would have ever got there if we would just written things down but there's deep conversations about well, it could mean this or it could mean that, or I guess this person means that. Those went on for a long time. <laughs> so there are a hundred poems. Do they have favourites? I I do, but it's really unseasonal <laughs> because it's actually the one that I come back to every time. I've I've asked a calligrapher to write it for me, and uh, I think it was actually one of the very first ones that we discussed when we when I was trying to tell now what kind of uh, collection this is. And it's number five. So it goes, Okuyamani, momiji fumiwake Naki shika no koe kiku toki zo Aki wa
3: Deep in the hills, scuffing through red leaves I hear deer cry out Oh, the sorrow of autumn
2: So the reason I like that one is just because I can totally picture it I I see this image in my head when I read the poem in either translation or in, in the, the original poem. And it really, there's something about it that really speaks to me on a kind of intangible level.
3: I might, well I read um, the one actually, another one that's one of my favorites is, because I, I can just see the image of it. And again, it was another one which took a lot of versions. Input from Pat as well, The Pat Warren, who was a brilliant editor on this project. Dawn and river mist on the Uji starts to clear. Now from its shallows, row after row of fish traps appear.
1: There was one I liked. In the cool of the night, I wait on Matsuo Beach for you. Like scorched seaweed salt, I burn for you. But you do not come. I mean, it's like, there's never very many poems of satisfied and kind of blissful love. It's always that kind of thing of... of Unrequited love, or longing, or you know that isn't it? That's that's that tends to be the mood, and that's a great example of that. I think you do not come,
2: and it's funny that you actually honed in on the the emotion from it because whenever I read that one, I immediately go back to this seaweed salt thing because that took ages to work out. What what is that? And it is it is making salt by using
1: seaweed. So they kind of boil it down and, and condense it. <laughs> So that was James Hadley and Nell Regan talking about A Gap in the Clouds, a new translation of the Ogura Hyakonin issue, and that's published by Daedalus Press in a handsome edition, a nice pocket-sized edition. And details, as usual, on our website, www.buzzsprout.com.
4: A man putting leaflets in letter boxes talking to himself reading in bed two of me in the window lit by the lamp five large oranges in a large green bowl other journeys. Green tea in a green cup, spring rain. Two horses and a donkey with their backs to the rain. alone in my hire car.
0: And that was Grant Caldwell reading from his new book of poetry, Blue Balloon, a collection of haiku and senryu published by Collective Effort Press Melbourne in 2020. Grant Caldwell is an Australian poet, novelist and academic. His latest books are Love and Derangement, a novel, which came out in 2014, Reflections of a Temporary Self, New and Selected Poems, that was 2015, and the critical monograph Intention and Unintention, or The Hyperconscious in Contemporary Lyric Impulse, 2018. Grant is currently a senior lecturer in the Creative Writing Program at Melbourne University. He has been writing and publishing for nearly three decades. His work is marked, I think, by a fearlessness that is compelling and it's fueled by a very distinctive outlook on life, a wry humour that's uplifting. His poetry comes with huge praise. One Australian critic said of his work, he's arguably the most spiritually rich original poet we have. And the poet Kevin Brophy, when launching the collection, said that his first reaction to these brief and brilliant impressions is pleasure. So, Grant, it has indeed been a great pleasure to read your collection and you are very welcome to Books for Breakfast this morning.
4: Thanks very much, Enda. Uh, it's my pleasure entirely, and uh, especially if you're going to say nice things about me.
0: <laughs> well, it's great pleasure to say that. We we're having great pleasure this morning, aren't we, we Grant? Are. So just to, say, yeah, just to say to listeners as well, Grant and I uh, met over two decades ago, which makes us sound very old. Um, I was a young poet, and I just won the Vincent Buckley Prize for Poetry. And I was invited to stay at Melbourne University. How lucky was I to be poet in residence there? And it was absolutely wonderful. But I knew nobody. And I remember getting a list of poets in Melbourne. And I just cold called you. And I, I said, would you like to meet? And we did. You were so kind and very welcoming. So thank you for that, Grant.
4: Well, it was very nice to meet you. And, and it still is, Ender
0: yeah it's so nice we're we're great we're great buddies although i must admit we've just been talking to each other intermittently over the years but it's so uh, nice to have you here um also yeah. i know that you have irish connections too, grant um in your family history your maternal grandmother and your paternal great-great-grandfather both came from ireland didn't they um and you were, yeah. i remember you came here in 2007 as well so there's wonderful haikus in your collection written like the one we just heard there about the donkey on Ackle island
4: Yes, I uh, uh, jo- I met John F. Dean in uh, in Wellington in two thousand and five at a poetry festival, and uh, we hit it off. Uh, he's mm-hmm. one of the funniest people I've ever met, and uh, and um, and we laughed a lot. He told he told me about the Ackle Island uh, Heinrich Bowl cottage. And invited me to apply and so so I did and uh, and lo and behold, they gave me three weeks there. I was very lonely but uh, but I, but I had a lot of time to wander around the island and it was cold, and it was you know it wasn 't in the summer the you know the tourist season, so to speak um, but it was very beautiful and uh, I wrote quite a lot of haiku. Some of which survived, and and I worked on a manuscript of poetry while I was there that was published in two thousand and ten. So I was doing that was mainly what I was doing, um, and uh, I met up with some of the sculptors and artists from uh, Dua. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing that badly.
0: Uh, no, that was very good, Grant. Well done.
4: And uh, and in in the in the hotel there called the pub, I think it's called. Um, <laughs> and uh, there are a great lot of people, along with John, who was born on Ackle Island. I don't know if you know
0: that yeah no, that is right yeah. that's right yeah actually he was my first publisher so uh, yeah i know john and that's fantastic that you got that experience and wonderful haikus about Ackle. one of them says behind the cottage wrens and finches in the fuchsias white waves at Dugurt, and then along narrow lanes the smell of peat smoke hills loom in the mist that's beautiful grant so obviously it was an inspiring time for you to be there
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's really interesting that the that what people gain or get or or repeat from your from your poetry, as you probably know, and and it's you know those poems for me, they are they're as they're aesthetic poems, uh, and and I never, you know, I'm always looking for irony and and uh, and that kind of thing. But some of the poems that I have that have no ne- ne- not, don't necessarily have a meaning. Or, or, or a, a reflective irony. Um, th- that I like them the most because they, they kind of, uh, they kind of encourage a kind of rumination on. You know, they're like a cone in a way. I, you know, Kevin chose some poems like that. Like he, he chose the poem about uh, leaving the house, a leaf on the doorstep. Now I have no. I kind of can make a meaning out of that, but but it goes further than that. If you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, I I love those kind of meditative poems as well in the collection. Grant, huh. um, the 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 selection of haiku and senryu in this book, they're a product of thirty years' work, though in your collection you say that the majority of them are written in the last ten years when you developed a stronger understanding of the range and the form. Um, Of of haiku and senryu, so I know that you've compared these forms to photographs in words, and um, we're going to ask you kind of nearly two questions now. I was wondering, first of all, where does your long-lasting interest in these forms come from, and and what do you love about them?
4: Yes, my mind is tumbling over them, Uh, Ender. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I think uh, you asked me where my interest first came from. Um, It's a long time ago uh, that I that I came upon haiku and I don't remember who it was, but it probably was those, uh, the, the early masters like Basho and Buson, uh, And, and I wrote very, I wrote poems that weren't really haiku. They were three line poems that, as I say, were kind of ironic. And, and um, they, they, they didn't have, you know, the, one of the things uh, you know haiku is a, is probably the most written form in in the in in the in the world and and it's written very badly i have to say uh, because people don't understand you know i never think thought i'd hear, my, hear myself say this but the rules are actually well they're more principles than rules they're very important uh, as a basis of course you can leap off from these Principles as you can from any principle, and create a new. You can you can you can invent uh, contemporary or modern forms. But if you understand the basic rules, you know rules uh, principles are there for a reason. They're there for 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 impact and for structure and and for and and for a reason, as I say. And and the and the basic rule about which I go into in the mini essay at the start of the book about. Breaking the three lines, it's really a, a compilation of 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 a phrase and a, a broken phrase and a fragment, and and the connection between the three can either be hinged or or, or, or kind of uh, connected or completely disconnected, uh, such as um, the the poem like the poem about the the horse and the donkey. There's a connection there because I'm in the vicinity of the horse and the donkey, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, I'm trying to think. There's a poem in the book about something about arguing, talking about philosophy on the street corner. The moon uh, leaves a, a moon behind the trees or something like that. It's kind of like you make a jump with the third line or indeed the first line. it's
0: I mean, in one haiku you wrote, "Newspaper on the neighbor's step." I write a haiku and it's gone. So uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is: Do you think a haiku is too fleeting if it's only written in the present? I, I'm thinking of uh, Basho when he said it was vital that the poet work along two axes: the vertical or the past, and the horizontal or the present.
4: Yeah, well, that's that's what I was alluding to when I was talking about. Uh, the need to to observe the principles, what he was talking about was the necessity to 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 understand the unchanging he called it said, which which to me you, you need he said he said he said don't follow what the old men did, seek what they sought. And this is the unchanging. This is uh, so. So you have to, if you if you go back into the tradition and the history and the, of the way the work you know, unfolded, which you know, and it and it started a lot earlier than Basho. I mean the, the form, uh, although it wasn't a, it wasn't in the form of the three lines they such, It was part of a much longer form of poetry but he developed this this opening poem as a as a poem on its in its own right which then was called a hoku, hokku which really means introductory verse and so it was setting up the 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 kind of uh, a kind of poem that was a game that was played by by poets uh, who who joined in and 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 followed each other with with lines etc so so that, and, and, and yet the the, the, the the horizontal axis is is, is accounting for the contemporary uh, being in the modern. and you have to you have to bring the new into your poetry. and this is where the combination exists. But there's a kind of different question to to what you said about it being fleeting, I, I would say.
1: Sorry to interrupt, then but I was just wondering. I'm very interested in that kind of distinction between the two sort of forms the uh, the notion of the haiku and the senryu, because maybe some of our listeners mightn't be aware of the of that kind
4: of distinction. <clears throat> yeah, it's a it's an important one. It's a good good. Thanks, Peter. It's uh, basically haiku. It's it, it's it's difficult question to answer briefly <laughs> um there are many schools of as there are in any mm. poetry form but especially given one that's uh, well it's it's it, the haiku or hoku is you know uh, 400 years old three or 400 years old but it goes back further than that but essentially haiku is uh it, it 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 has a it has a cultural or seasonal and and those two things can be the same thing basis or reflection within the poem. So haikus necessarily have to have some inference in them that is either seasonal, either or, either and, seasonal or cultural. Now, uh, and so it's really about, Nature. That's why that's why a lot of the haiku are about nature to a certain extent. Whereas Senru I, I, I and there's various mm-hmm. uh, 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 definitions of this, is based on a on a Japanese poet called Senru. That's where the name comes from. And uh, and it and it's and he wrote very mm-hmm. amusing poems about people. So they're about their human nature. That's that's the distinction, and they're usually Mm -hmm. funny because, as we know, people are very funny. And,
0: and Grant, and Grant. also, you are very funny. So I, I'd like to thank Peter, sir, for coming back and saying, no, but just tell us the difference. So I think our listeners now know. And speaking of humour as well, Grant, I think one of your great grif- gifts is exactly that. I mean, I think you have a brilliant likeness of touch to your work. Uh, you're quirky, the way you look on life. And it's, I think this quirkiness is always happily present there. Um, I'm thinking of your fly poems, Mind Out, Fruit fly. I'm trying to write here. I can't put on my Australian accent. Or after strong coffee, I can't stop writing. Bad haiku. <laughs> Better not give you any coffee this morning, Grant. Um, but can you talk about the importance of humor in your work?
4: Well, it's it's what it's what keeps the world going, doesn't it? Uh I you know, I I don't know. I it's it's instinctive. It's uh I uh, I, I can't I have no explanation except that, you know, it's like it's like having breakfast at twelve midday. Um, you know, you ca- it's. Uh, I, I uh, it's interesting. Uh, a friend of mine, Myron Lysenko. I don't know if you remember Myron. He he wrote this very serious poem once about his brother getting caught in a chimney when they were young kids, and he wrote it three years after his brother's death at a much later age. Right, and the poem is very. It's very metaphorical for his brother's death. and uh, There's lots of images in it. But he was reading it, and, and but in the middle of the poem, it's quite a long poem in the shape of a, ch- uh, of a chimney. In the middle of the poem, he was reading it. I heard him read it alive one day, one of the first times I heard it. And in the middle of the poem, he said, so I went home and had a sandwich. This is while his brother was stuck in the chimney. And the whole audience just, broke up laughing, and then he continued the poem. And I said to him later, where did that come from? You know, what – what?" He said oh, he said the whole room felt really serious and I I, I just hated the way everything <laughs> it was so serious so I just threw that in there. <laughs> and maybe that's what oh, maybe that's what we're doing you know with humor we're kind of uh, you know we don't want to get too serious otherwise that's when people kind of start bashing each other verbally or or otherwise yeah. and uh, humor is a great leveler isn't it it's uh, and it's it's universal wherever I've been in the world People have the same humor. Chinese people have the same humor as Australians, you know. But but people think that people are different just because they look different. It's total bullshit. Oh, excuse my.
0: I have to say that's the first time bullshit has been said on books for breakfast. Good on you, Grant. But I agree with the humor is so important. So well done to Myron for doing that and going off to have a sandwich. But I quoted a poem (laughs) about the, the fly earlier. Your flies made me laugh in this book, Grant. Opening the door to let a fly out. Two more fly in or mor- yeah. morning light, lookout flies. There's a huntsman on the ceiling. Now, Peter Sir didn't yeah. know what a huntsman was because he hasn't been to Australia. But can you explain uh, to uh, listeners what a huntsman is?
4: Well, a huntsman can be as big as your hand or more. Oh wow. But they're totally but they're totally harmless. Okay. I mean, tell that to an arachnophobe, but they really are. Okay. Uh, and 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 they they catch they catch flies and mosquitoes, so you want to look after them, you know. But of yeah. course, arachnophobes they see this thing. It can be a bit smaller, but they just <laughs> they just hand, they just stick usually on the ceiling or the wall high up, and they just sit there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how they must have some means of attracting. Maybe they smell a little bit and attract mosquitoes. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I haven't seen. I haven't investigated that far, but but what you said a minute ago, oh, was, I can't remember. I was going to say something to, about what you was, just said. Was it
0: humour or something? But talking about the huntsman, there's so much of the natural world in your poems. It's, it's an urban natural oh, world, yeah. and to me it feels really authentic. There's lots of ants, there's a peach tree, there's doves kissing in a kitchen window, there's a flock of yeah. starlings wheeling over a cemetery, there's a mudlark, you say, in the gutter lifting wet leaves yeah. for insects. And it made me miss Melbourne a lot yeah. when you said lots of leaves and gutters are scattering across streets. Um, you spoke about Brunswick Street Oval, a leaf jumps the fence and runs across the grass. So I think it's fair to say Grant you are an urban naturalist, I think. Yeah.
4: Yeah, but you see you see you are getting those cultural connections. Mm-hmm. No matter how no matter how how young they are because let's let's not forget that the aboriginal the indigenous people have been here for 40 to 60,000 years. We've been here like 2 or 300 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. it's nothing. So our, our culture is it's very my my wife who's Chinese says that Australia has no culture and I said, we've got all the cultures in the world here and we have the oldest one And she said, yeah, but look what you did to them <laughs> yeah, yeah. so so but 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 what you're saying is still it's an it's the urban culture as you say but but if you think about it, What if you if you're writing about your observations, which is basically what haiku is, because it needs to be neither objective or or subjective. It it has to be. Even though there's myself in the poems, you really have to you have to leave yourself. Basho said, "In order to understand the pine, you have you must become the pine." Mm -hmm. And and so, what what are you going to write about in your observations? You can write about your room, and I do that, of course, but but the most interesting stuff or 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 generally you know is happening out there you know among and its nature you know it's, it's birds and trees and fl- flowers and insects and 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 i just what i remember what i was going to say i owe a lot and i have to say this for people who know about haiku uh Issa was a great poet of the insects mm-hmm. and i'm and i'm and i'm following on from him here uh he wrote some wonderful uh, poems, very funny uh, about insects, and uh, and some of them quite uh, po- quite poignant as well. So he's worth checking out. I double S A. Yeah,
0: oh yeah, definitely. I'll be checking checking him out. And also, I love that one of the reviewers picked up on this and said these poems delight in their naive surprise, and they are stunning reminders that the healing beauty of the natural world is also found in the city. So that's that's a good review there, Grant. So the
4: book, Yeah, who said that? I, I, I Was that in the Plumwood thing? Yeah,
0: that's right. The, the, the recent review oh. that just came out of your book. Actually, it's brilliant that you're getting such a positive response to it, Grant. And also, I wanted to ask you about travel because the book is split into three sections. We spoke about Ireland, but the poems don't just travel to there. They go to China, Kyoto, France. I love the French ones. This pigeon gets into the metro for free very good grant just just travel feed your compulsion to write
4: uh, not necessarily. But when I travel, you know, when you travel, you see things anew. Uh, you see things mm-hmm. freshly. So it's a, it's a great impetus. It's it's a great uh a stimulant. Uh, everything is yeah. is new, and you, and so you see it anew, which is what you should be doing with your poetry anyway. It's a great lesson, you know. We yeah. you, we you should be looking at Dublin anew if you go. You know, Matisse said we must see things li- or something like and translate. Of course, from French, but he said, we must, uh, we must. Uh, we must see things like a child. We must see things as if for the first time. And I think yeah. I think travelling aids that a great deal. And, and it may be a good lesson for us in, in what we observe uh, if we are writing from observation and memory. I mean,
0: it's a great idea, isn't it, to keep fresh and see things anew? There's an elegant shape to the collection grant as well, which mm. I really liked. For instance, you start with a circle and then it comes back to the circle at the end in the penultimate lines, attempting to draw a perfect... Yeah. Perfect circle. There's nothing to it. So I think there is a, a, a strong craft there. Did you enjoy the structuring of it?
4: Yeah, I did. I, I put a lot of work into into the structure, uh, and, and as well as a selection. Uh, I had to. I spent a year uh, throwing lots of lots away. I haven't totally thrown them away, but I I, I brought it back down to this 280 or 90 poems and and it was it was it, it was a lot of fun doing that but structuring it too was a lot of fun and uh and as you say the uh, the the bulk of the of the of the book are the, are the poems from the last uh, 5 to 10 years where and the reason you alluded to this before the reason that that occurred is because in the last 5 to 10 years as i say in the introduction i i feel like i've started to understand the form uh, a lot better. I won't say perfectly at all, because in twenty years' time, if I'm still around, I'll probably look back on this collection, you know, a, a- askance. But uh, but at the moment, it's very satisfactory, and I and I and I love the reactions I'm yeah, getting. Yeah,
3: it's
0: very. It's more than very satisfactory, Grant. But um, I'm just wondering as well, subtly, the state of the world at the moment and the pandemic is present there in some of the haikus. Coronavirus, old people in the park exercising. Another one: coronavirus. People wearing masks outside the bank. Just, we're here in Dublin. You're in Melbourne. How has it been? You know, you, you came through lockdown in Melbourne. Um, you managed. You managed to keep the virus at bay. But how has it been for you as a writer, being there during the pandemic? Have you been able to keep going on new projects and stuff?
4: Well, the university takes a lot of energy and time, and uh, a lot of the work I do. Maybe this is why I've been able to attend to the short form of poetry. I, I, I scribble stuff all the time, and poetry. I've got a, some novels, kind of in the drawer, so to speak, that I bring out and rework every now and then. Um, but I can't work on a, on a novel. I couldn't start a new novel. So, but so it hasn't the virus hasn't made a lot of difference to me in in that respect. Um, because I had to work from home anyway, I work. I just been teaching online and having countless Zoom meetings for administrative stuff, and mm. and doing doing research uh, basically from home. And we're mm. back. We're back uh, on campus now. I don't know if you know that, but back yeah, in back wow. back in the classroom, and it's terrific. I just uh, I just didn't realise how much I missed it. It's just so so good. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we were very lucky in Australia. We had governments that really came down hard early and and was very unpopular in a lot of cases. And a lot of businesses suffered, of course, but it was well worth it in the long run. And even now, Queensland has just had another outbreak because uh, international travellers are the danger, and, you know, as you'd understand. And uh, there's a, I think it's the UK... Uh, variant uh, has been discovered by uh, in, okay, in and right. and it's a there's a growing um uh what do you call it a uh, group of people who who are i think they counted seven the other day uh, yesterday but which sounds nothing f- to, f- for people in in europe and 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 a lot of other places in the world where it's just ramp mm. rampant isn't it yeah i've that's got
1: right.
4: i've got because i'm of my age i've got the a vaccination Lined up in two weeks' time. So, okay, that's brilliant, Grant. Well, I hope so. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I love the fact that you're back in class. I mean, we can't wait for the energy of that, of being able to interact with people again. And, Grant, you're going to conclude now with uh, five more wonderful haikus, um, and then we lead you into the toaster challenge. But thanks for that chat, Grant. It was great to get a blast of Australia into our house this morning. So, you're going to begin with a haiku called Leaving the Church.
4: Leaving the church, boy with plastic sword, mum with purse. This morning, in the letterbox, sunlight. Five ravens in the eucalyptus tree, watching the garbage truck. Silent tree, the sky moves you kissing her my hat blows off
0: thank you so much grant i love that one kissing her my hat blows off (laughs) a great a great ending there that was grant caldwell reading from his new book of poetry blue balloon a collection of haiku in Senryu published by Collective Effort Press, Melbourne in 2020. And one reviewer said it is a chime for promise and grace about one of the poems. But I think that that chime of promise and grace fits for the entire collection. So well done, Grant. So now it's time to move on to the toaster challenge. And Peter is going to get the toaster ready. He's going to get the bread on and we're going to listen to Grant talking about a book that's really touched him or stayed with him and he's going to talk for the length of time it takes to make a slice of toast so i'm going to count you in grant you've got three minutes and please don't let the toast burn okay so i'm going to count you in one two three and off you go
4: okay thank you i'm going to talk about um, hunger a, a novel written by noot Hampson uh and it was i think it was first published in 1890 uh Knut is a Norwegian novelist a very interesting character uh very interesting life uh well worth reading about it is a movie made of his life and he's a controversial character um but i should talk about the book i might talk about the controversy of him supporting hitler it's not quite as black and white as that and i'll get to that but uh hunger itself was quite a revelation in its form at the time and i in my opinion and i'm sure others have said things like this it was a huge influence on the modernists uh, like joyce and kafka you can read you can if you read hunger alone but 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 hamsel's other books you can see the connection with kafka and joyce some 30 years later and i would i would put money if I was a betting person, I would put money on that they had read *Hunger*, both uh, both uh, Kafka and Joyce. And uh, I know that Hemingway uh, referred to Hampson, I'm pretty sure, if I remember rightly. So, but he he this book *Hunger* is very much a, a flow of consciousness. Uh, it, the whole book is this flow of consciousness of this. Uh, he's a writer, uh, a very poor writer. He he hardly has anything to eat. He owes rent. Uh, he wanders around what was then Christiania, which I think is Oslo. Was the original name of Oslo, and um, and it just follows his mind, uh, and it's amazing, and and follows the 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 fluctuations of his mind, and and it's you know it's it, it's it it's kind of the epitome of the. In- of the of the individual and the internal machinations of of the of of psychology of this mind and indeed the emotions w- that are connected to that i i, I often have thought that uh, that thoughts are the emotions of the mind but if you look in the mind of this character in hunger which is very much a, a work of autofiction i mean if you read about Hampson, it. It's very close to his own existence when he was when he was very young and just a young writer, and he escaped from Christiania, and as he does at the end of this book, and went to America. He went to America a few times, and they say that he picked up on the language of the Americans, the very slick, wise cracking style of Americans, uh, which. Which infused uh, his books that he later wrote and, and got into, and uh, and you can sense that. I mean, it's not it's not really it's not like American prose, but uh, but there's something to that. And um, I, I just wanted to talk about how he cured himself of an incurable tuberculosis or something like that by getting on the top of a train in in the East Coast and travelling across the whole. Coast, the whole breadth of the United States. On the top of the train, with his mouth open, breathing in the air. And when he got to San Francisco, he went to the doctor, and he was cured. Now I'm I'm editorializing here. You might read the story and might be slightly different, but that's how I remember it. And that's kind of a remarkable character he was. But um, I really enjoyed because you asking me about this has made me read it again. But I haven't. <laughs> I haven't managed to finish it but uh, but i got well into it and I'm really enjoying it again it's uh, and and that says something because I don't know if you have this experience but you go back to your favorite you know a favorite novel or something you know 10 20 years later and it's often a bit of a disappointment uh but this one this one has it hasn't disappointed me at all so far
1: we'll come back when you finish it and see how it held up and we'd give you another slice of toast then.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah right. exactly. We didn't even cover that. So I think it's not <laughs> the it to challenge, the to challenge. That is the wackiest toaster challenge we've ever done. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, Grant. <laughs> But Grant, I, I just wish that I was sitting in your lectures in Melbourne. I'd say they are a great crack altogether. But thanks so much for that, because that idea of coming back to a book that you haven't read for ages, I'm so delighted that you really loved it and hailed a masterpiece um, of psychological force. And amazing, as you said, it was published in 1890. So that that's Grant Goldwell. Thank you so much talking about newt handsome i used to go around calling him Knut when i first discovered him um but i'm delighted that you've 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 corrected me there so i now know in future newt handsome
4: well i wouldn't rely i wouldn't rely on my <laughs> pronunciation ender but
0: <laughs> yeah i know i really need to do, yeah, do some norwegian so. classes so newt handsome hunger um, and thanks for that really fine endorsement and quirky endorsement grant so that's grant caldwell recommending that book and also we had the great privilege of hearing him read and talk about his new book of poetry, Blue Balloon, a collection of haiku and senyu published by Collective Effort Press in Melbourne. And it's been a real pleasure to have you, Grant Caldwell, and do come back again. You're always welcome. Thank you.
4: I'd love to come back. And thank you very much, Ender and Peter. I enjoyed it thoroughly. <laughs> always enjoy talking about myself, of course.
0: We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again?
1: Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so. We'll be back again next Thursday morning. We'll have the toast on. We'll have
0: the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So
4: goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.